0: Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome
1: to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Okay, interesting show today. I have an interview on the topic of California's energy nightmare, and then I'm going to answer two questions from listeners slash viewers. So let's jump right into the interview. On today's show, I'm interviewing Ron Stein. Ron is an energy commentator who has a pretty extensive background in the energy industry. And I'm now recording this after the interview. I found out in the interview that actually the moral case for fossil fuels inspired him to start sharing his knowledge of energy uh, with the world, which is pretty cool. He is the founder of PTS Advance, which is a uh, successful energy staffing company. And he's the author of two books. One is called Energy Made Easy and the other is called Just Green Electricity. Uh, The reason I brought him on in particular is I've been reading some of his columns and he makes a lot of points that, there's a lot of overlap between the points that he makes and the points that I make, uh, but he has had a lot of columns in particular on the energy situation in California, where I live and where he lives. And this is something where uh, I'm not an expert at all on California energy in particular, I know more about it than most, but I was eager to pick his brain. And so I think we covered a lot of interesting topics. So I hope you enjoy that. And then after that, I will take two questions from listeners. All right. Coming up, Ron Stein on California's Energy Nightmare. I'm joined now by Ron Stein to talk about California energy policy. Ron, welcome to Power Hour.
0: Glad to be aboard.
1: So, Ron, I know you've worked for decades in the energy industry, but how did you become so interested in energy policy, and particularly California policy, which you know a lot about?
0: Well, I began my career working at an international engineering and construction firm, designing and building infrastructures around the world, and had the opportunity to be involved in several refinery projects, some internationally and some in California, and learned a lot about the intricacies of that energy industry. And then in 1995, we had the opportunity to start a staffing staffing firm that was focused on providing staffing augmentation to that energy industry and having a complete understanding of the industry, the terminology, the duties, the responsibilities of the various job positions and the key players in the industry. That was a catalyst for the company to grow and prosper. And to the point now that PTS Advance is now one of the largest staffing firms in Orange County. And then after reading your book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, it was an aha moment when I realized that folks had very little energy literacy to fully comprehend what the industry was done for developing societies, economies, and lifestyles. And that began my passion and focus on authoring Numerous updated articles in two books that attempt to provide, in layman's terms, an explanation of the great things that fossil fuels have done and are doing for societies and economies worldwide.
1: Wow! So I didn't know this actually. I didn't. I didn't bring you on knowing this fact that you okay. got interested in advocacy uh, from my book. I mean, we met many. Uh, years ago. So so prior to that, you weren't doing much publicly talking about these things, writing about these things? None,
0: none at all. You started it all.
1: <laughs> so what, what, I just curious, what specifically did you, was it just that, that you realized, wow, people don't understand that stuff? Because surely you had to know just talking to people that they didn't know about this stuff.
0: No, energy can be pretty complex. And um, most people just turn on the light, you know, start their car. They have no idea where the parts of the car came from, how it was assembled. There's there's a lot of behind the scenes that people just don't pay attention to. And um, the way the world is going, it was an opportunity to provide some literacy so they have an understanding of what's going on in the press. And then we read about the Green really New Deal, is it good for us or bad for us or You know, uh, we've, in our two books, we've done a lot of research what's going on around the world. So it's not just the tunnel vision of the California, which represents half of 1% of the world population. The rest of the world is rolling along.
1: Yeah, but well, yeah, let's we'll talk about it in the context of the world. But I'm very one reason I brought you on is because I was reading some of your articles, and you had some really good articles about California. And it's always been probably my biggest insecurity about my energy knowledge has been California energy policy, given that I've lived here for 15 years, 16 years. uh, Now, Mm -hmm. I, I was learning a lot from reading your stuff. So let me start out with the question that every Uber driver asks me when they learn about what I do for a living, which is why are our gas price, gasoline prices so high?
0: Well, you know, virtually everything we buy is the listed price bus tax. That applies to clothes, computers, cars, except fuel. You know, our California lawmakers, they're keeping residents blissfully ignorant of the many taxes and regulatory costs that are dumped onto the posted price at the pump. You know, while the governor and the attorney general are getting a lot of press about challenging why like Californians continue to pay almost a dollar more per gallon than the rest of the country, some of the costs are hidden. They're basically not transparent to the public in that all in posted price. And they include federal tax, excise tax, sales tax, local sales tax, California's cap and trade, California's low carbon fuel standard, California's renewable fuel standard in the California refinery winter and summer reform, reformulating costs. That's a lot of taxes and environmental compliance costs that are not transparent to the public. The future looks even bleaker for California because the cap and trade program and the low carbon fuel standard, those programs are just kicking into high gear. And what I mean by that, compliance is getting more and more difficult each year and more costly. Those two government Environmental programs, the two alone might add another dollar by twenty thirty to the price of gasoline.
1: So how do how do those work? How, how how exactly do they add price to the gasoline? Those two.
0: It's tougher and tougher to keep reducing the emissions. You're gotcha. The and so a few years ago, uh, back in two thousand eighteen, I was at a hearing before the state senate committee on business, profession, and economic development because I testified in support of a a bill that John Borlach put out, I call it the Transparency Bill, and it would have required gas stations to post near each gas and diesel put a list of the cost factors to include the federal, state, local taxes, all the costs associated with all the environmental rules and regulations. And the Democratic Controlled Committee was adamant. They did not want the public to see those costs and they killed the bill.
1: That's a great, I like that idea. That's a good, that's a good idea. I mean, it would, it would yeah. totally change people's perspective because they would get the causes of it. Because right now it just feels like it, if you're at the Chevron station in Laguna Beach, it just feels like, oh, it's just Chevron is charging you that. And right. that's, that's you know, what they're getting.
0: Right, today you know, we're hearing from the governor and the attorney general, we need an investigation as to why gas prices are so high. But it was their, <laughs> it was their own party It was adamant that they didn't want the public to know those details. You know, passage of the transparency bill would have remedied the concerns and brought it up front because you could make it twice as expensive for a refinery to make the fuel. They're just gonna pass it on to the consumer and that's not being transparent to the public.
1: Yeah, I like, I like that idea. I'm sure there are other places where it could be applied as well in terms of uh, transparency. So let's talk about just California in general because California is this interesting case of we think of ourselves as somehow separate from oil or we're rising above oil. How much oil does California use and, and what are we using it for?
0: Well, California, as you know, is the fifth largest economy in the world and we are an energy hog. The, you know, with California Alaska oil production on the decline, California has been importing crude oil from foreign countries to make up the difference. And we imported like 354 million barrels annually. That's a lot of oil, you know, for the refineries to manufacture the usable fuels and petroleum derivatives that make more than 6,000 products that are part of our daily lives. The daily fuel usage, these are big numbers. You know, California has 145 airports. 33 are military, 10 are major, and then there's 100 general. And then they consume like 13 million gallons of aviation fuel every day. That's one-fifth of the nation's jet fuel consumption. California's got 31 million registered vehicles. They're consuming 10 million gallons of diesel and 42 million gallons of gasoline a day. Collectively between diesel, aviation, and gasoline, that's 65 million gallons of various fuels needed daily to run the California economy. But more importantly than the fuel is, you know, for the transportation infrastructures, is the 6,000 products that come from petroleum derivatives. Those products did not exist before 1900, and they support our current economies. The lifestyles we had before 1900, it was hard and dirty. Life expectancy was about 40 years of age. And we live with, without those products that they're the basis of medication. The basis so of- ta- So
1: you're talking about products that are made of oil or natural gas, right? That are derived made, from physically made, like plastics.
0: Petroleum derivatives. All medications are made from petroleum derivatives. Electronics, communications, plastic, all forms of transportation. The Tesla is 100% made with petroleum derivatives you look at well. you mean you mean it's
1: involved in all the components it's got some it's got a lot of aluminum
0: in it and then you know we've had almost 200 years to develop clones and generics to replace those products and we said they would do it the social needs of our materialistic society are most likely going to demand more and more products from those chemicals uh that they get manufactured out of crude and uh, you know, for continuous, another problem, continuous, you want continuous, uninterruptible, reliable electricity, it'll most likely be from coal, natural gas, or nuclear generation as backup for the windless and sunless days that make wind and solar useless.
1: Yeah, well, let's talk about that soon. I wanna just stay on oil um, for a minute. So we've talked about the, I mean, oil is is so distinctive. I mean, it's, it's the it along with natural gas is the basis of these what we can call petroleum products or petroleum derivatives, but it's also just this unrivaled fuel for mobility. That's why all the cargo ships are using it, all the planes are using it, just about all the tractors are using it, the agricultural equipment is using it. And you've talked about California as a huge economy is using a huge amount of it. Now you mentioned something interesting, which is that a lot of it is imported and that might strike people as odd. If they know that the United States has enormous oil production and even Canada has a lot of though, we're having trouble getting it okay. over because of anti-development forces. But why is it that we in California, I guess, where is our oil coming from? Well, and why is it coming yeah, from that?
0: California is an energy island. We're inhabited by 40 million residents, and we're situated between the Pacific Ocean on one side and the Arizona and Nevada state line on the other side. And there's no pipelines over the Sierra Mountains that run along the eastern border and effectively separates us from the rest of the country.
1: So the rest of the country is connected pretty well by pipelines?
0: Yes, yes. And through our dysfunctional energy policies, we're the only state, the only state in contiguous America that imports most of our crude oil energy from foreign suppliers to meet the energy demands of the state. Do you know which are the
1: main suppliers for us?
0: They're from, most of them are 10,000 miles away in Saudi Arabia, but all the foreign countries. You know, the other 49 states have implemented exploration efforts that have contributed to America being a net exporter, but our California leaders, it's better to import crude oil instead of increasing in state crude oil production from the largest shale reserves and ocean reserves. No, in the Monterey Shale and
1: Pacific Ocean. Okay, well let's let's talk about that because that's important. So, uh, and I've heard different things about Monterey Shale, but but essentially, if you look at the U.S. development of oil and gas, it's different. Broadly speaking, different kinds of what's called shale. So shale oil, shale gas, and you know the most prolific basin is the Permian Basin, in uh, in Texas. But you have some in North Dakota, some in Colorado, uh, other kinds of places, and then in the east you have a lot of natural gas shale deposits, and then and so california you know historically has been a big oil producer and you mentioned we're declining alaska's declining but you're saying we have we have a shale deposit of our own that at least has potential so if you can talk yes. about that
0: well it has potential but we have a no drilling philosophy here in california let me show a graph from the california energy commission this is from the california energy commission the the blue is california and you see production has been going down and the when does it orange, start
1: when does it start?
0: It starts in 1983 and goes to today. Okay,
1: because I'll bet it goes down even before that. But
0: Yeah, like you said, California production had been going down. Alaska production was expected to go down. And green is the foreign crude oil. Back in 92, back here, we were importing 5% of our oil from foreign countries. But because California and Alaska production had been going down, we've been making up for it with... Imports from foreign countries. So we imported five percent back in '92. Today, it's 58 percent. 58 percent of our critical needs are coming in from foreign countries, and you know, to, to put that in dollars, it is costing us 60 million dollars every day, every day, being paid to foreign rich foreign countries. That's you know, depriving California of jobs, careers, business business opportunities. We've yet, we've yet to get any thank you cards from the suppliers. Well, right it, the
1: I mean, I, I might have a slightly different perspective of this. I mean, my view is if, if we didn't have the capability to produce it in California and if it was cost, so my issue is that it's A, we're being restricted in terms of developing the resource here. And I don't know about the, if it's economic to make pipelines, but presumably if you had all this production in the US and Canada, it would probably be practical to make pipelines one way or another. And what you have in California is obviously this, as you mentioned, this anti-drilling philosophy, more broadly, this anti-human impact policy. It says we shouldn't be uh, touching anything and we shouldn't be, certainly we shouldn't be drilling for oil. And one reason I wanted to bring you on is that there's just not an awareness in California of how much oil we use and how vital it is to our way of life. And so we don't think about where does it come from. And I think it's, it's shocking to people that, oh yeah, it comes from Saudi Arabia, even though we have the capability to produce it here. And even though the capability exists in the U.S., because we have this anti-development. So we're not we're not, not consuming oil. We're just not producing oil. And, we're not producing this.
0: Yes. We're, we're yeah, just using, then, it's, it's being imported from everywhere else.
1: And then you just think in terms of opportunity, you think about, I mean, this is certainly a time... I mean, you always have times where people would want the opportunities. Certainly, people are happy to take advantage of the opportunities that exist today in the oil and gas industry in California that are very limited. Imagine if we were liberated to actually develop these different places. That would be huge opportunities for people now who are either out of work or have jobs that are less fulfilling and less rewarding. So it seems like a huge opportunity, but that's being just scuttled by the anti-impact People.
0: Well, the, the fact that the U.S. is a net oil exporter, all that oil in the Midwest, California has zero access to that. The only way to get that oil to us is to send it through the Panama Canal, and that's, that's too expensive. You could send it by um, freight, um, but crewed by rail, all those projects that have been attempted have been shut down by environmentalists. So no, we have no access to that, it's, it's, it's pathetic. The interesting thing is, a lot of the offshore oil is within seven miles of the coast, and with current technology, they would do slant drilling. There would be no offshore drilling to access that oil. But, like I say, California wants to, you know, reduce our oil, and uh, it's 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 getting worse every day.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's got kind of so tragic this this state because i mean i i still live here i love living here it's so nice it's so nice that they can get away with so much and you just think about yeah i mean offshore drilling i think is good um anyway you know putting up a rig for a couple decades and what's the difference between that and a boat you know boats going around it's just but now you can even do it without. The, the visible rig, and it's just this, uh, this dogma. So one thing you've written about that I want to ask you about is, who are, who are the biggest victims of California's oil policies? We mentioned people who could potentially get very rewarding jobs in the industry, but who else is being victimized by this stuff?
0: Well, to the detriment of those that can least afford expensive fuel for transportation, the practice of dumping more and more cost onto the posted price of the pump is blatantly keeping those costs from being transparent to the public. It's contributed to the poorest residents, particularly Latinos, African Americans. You know, paying a dollar more for fuel than the rest of the country. And you know, if you're making big bucks, you know, so you put fifty or hundred bucks in your gas tank. If you're flipping burgers, you know, you gotta say, well, does that fifty bucks go to for fuel, pay the rent, pay utilities, put food on the table? It's it's really tough on those folks. And we profess to be the leader of everything, but spouting uh, voracious pride about the only state that imports most of the oil from foreign countries, and we'll get to this too, and a state that imports more electricity than any other state. Uh, that's not in the best interest of the fifth largest economy in the world. And you know, it's fine to import when you get bargain rates, but both oil and electricity are very expensive commodities to import and they're ultra expensive, and uh, it drives up the cost of everything. Everything's affected.
1: Yeah. So I, I want to talk about electricity in a second. I just would add one thing. So you're, you, I mean, there are these direct, with energy, there's always the direct cost and then the indirect cost, because the direct cost you notice when it's harder to, you know, when it's more expensive to drive somewhere. But then you just think about with oil, where is oil being used to produce things? Because every dollar the price goes higher to produce things, that dollar has to be passed on to you as the consumer. So you just think about oil being involved in agriculture, how that drives up food prices, transportation that drives up food prices uh, as well, the refrigeration of the things uh, in the trucks. And there's just, I think there's a real opportunity for the victims of this to stand up and to say, you know, these, these green policies are, just exploiting us, and there are people who are feeling good about themselves uh, at our expense and the expense of, of millions of others. Let's, let's jump into um, electricity. So let's start off with how do, and I, I know this from personal experience, but how do our electricity prices compare to the rest of the country?
0: Well, as you may know, California households are already paying 50% more than the national average. Industrial users are paying double the national averages and this is the manufacturers they simply pass that added cost for energy into the products and services they're providing society and while the state has no plans to replace we got four power plants coming down one nuclear and three natural gas power plants
1: so nuclear is diablo
0: diablo's coming down in a few years because san
1: Onofre already went down right that's the right, one that's pretty there. near me
0: yes went down and and there's no plans for replacing it with in-state intermittent electricity from wind and solar. The state's gonna to need to import more electricity. It's gonna be higher priced. And with that, it's just gonna to be tougher and tougher on residents and businesses paying their
1: premium over the coming years. Let's talk about the I- importing, because I don't think this is something that's very well understood. When you hear about a California electricity policy, people just assume, oh, California is going to be powered by X wind and solar. That stuff must be in California and we're self-sufficient, but the grids that we're using are, are national or at least very large regional grids. So how much of our electricity is coming from other places and where, uh, where is it coming from?
0: Well, We got, we imported 29% of our electricity last year. It's just coming from other states. And, you know, hopefully the other states will have the capacity to generate as much as we're using.
1: Think about that, 29% of the electricity for factories and homes, it's like all coming. So is that Arizona, where
0: is it coming from specifically? Every connecting state is is we're getting it from. I mean, the grid's well-connected. But and where where's the their fo-
1: f- what's generating their power?
0: Um, hydro, some coal, some natural gas. It, it comes from everything, from some wind and some solar, but that's so unreliable, you really can't depend on that.
1: Yeah, so I think that's just really important, because I make this point a lot, that, you, that there's, it's not a viable thing to have unreliables relying on unreliable. So you always have to rely on the reliable somewhere. So if you ever hear something like, oh, we're producing mostly solar and wind, you're not consuming mostly solar and wind. So you're getting it from somewhere. And I don't know if this is true. I was in Utah a while back and I think it was a Utah coal producer and he's telling me, oh yeah, I love selling power to California. I'm not, So I'm not, and there's dynamics like that all over the place where people are more than happy to sell us power to premium. And If I'm not mistaken, we have really high industrial rates as well, right?
0: Yes, industrial, they're paying double the national average.
1: Yeah, that's really important. Um, Often, we think too much in terms of residential everything, so residential rates, but so we're paying 50% more. Uh, residentially. And if you, you, I mean, I think a lot of people are having sticker shock now during COVID because they're using more than their quote, like allotment. And then they really mm-hmm. jack up the rates. I don't even know if that's properly represented because you hear people paying 55 cents a kilowatt hour, which is never quoted in these, uh, these averages. It's just, it's, but the, there's so the, the residential, but the industrial, I mean, that's how we produce things. So what's, what happens to production? Well, Alex, you know, we can things.
0: When San Onofre went down, you know, we didn't see any change because there was no brownouts. But that was the good news. But the bad news is everybody's bills went up because there was a lot of power that went offline. And it had to come from somewhere. It came from out of state. And yeah, yeah, there's no transparent.
1: Is there a transparency about that in the the electric bills?
0: Well, I'm going to be in charge of Doing an update of the Orange County um, infrastructure, and uh, energy is going to be part of it. And I'm going to try and make it a more transparent. I'll make sure that Southern California Edison tells the truth about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that would be uh, That would be fantastic. So, just to say one more thing about the industrial, this is, I think, this is something that as citizens we should really worry about because if you just think about if you're So I use the example of aluminum. So you're using something that uses a lot of electricity like aluminum. If you're an aluminum producer, how much electricity costs is so central to where you'll locate? And we've seen cases, say in the UK, where they have these green energy policies, electricity prices skyrocket. And so they just don't produce aluminum there. And so what do you do? You're still using aluminum, but you're buying it from China and they are having the business and they're using the coal to do it. Uh, but now you've become less productive. Now the wealthier people in the UK, they, they're okay with, with it, but the people who are losing their jobs or the people who are poor and are paying premiums, they're the ones getting screwed. And yet the, the wealthier people are, are getting status from it, which is very bothersome to me.
0: You mentioned China, just for your information, between China and India, they have almost 6,000 power plants, powered by coal, coal-fired power plants, and they're building 600 more.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really good statistic because there's, there's this mythology that, oh, well, China, we better, we better get off fossil fuels because China is the leader in getting off fossil fuels. They're not using solar no. and wind, and they're <laughs> definitely the leader of building and commissioning coal plants yes. around the world. And, and they, you know, they have a very, I think that government in particular has very much a, it is can be competitive and, and not the healthiest sense of it, but I think they're all too happy for the U.S. to jack up our electricity prices for us to have reliability problems. And what are manufacturers going to do? I mean, the reliability is another um, aspect to this. You know, one thing, I don't know if you've heard anything about this, I'm curious, but I've heard just from behind the scenes people a lot about industri- what I call industrial blackouts. So instead of cutting off power to the consumer, to the residential people, they'll tell you know a factory, hey, we can't give you power if it's a hot day, or we can't give you power if it's, you just think about you're manufacturing something and now the weather or these other things are determining, you can't sustain that for long in a global market with unreliable electricity.
0: Well, to keep the economy going, you need the manufacturers running. Yeah, if you turn yeah. Them on, that's, that's, that's going to be a big hit to the economy.
1: Yeah. So um, let's see. Who do you think? So we talked about this a little bit, but who who are the biggest victims of California's electricity policies?
0: Uh, again, it's the same thing. You know, To the detriment of those who at least afford expensive electricity, that lavishly imported electricity is contributing to the poorest residents. Again, it's the Latinos and Africans that are paying, you know, 50% more. It's, you know, the California SB 100, that bill sets us a path toward 100% renewable energy by 2045. That was a second aha moment for me because, you know, in the motivation for doing my latest book, because... Renewable energy, all the politicians talk about renewable energy, renewable energy, renewable energy, but renewable energy is only renewable electricity, and intermittent electricity at best. You know, first, modern life's 100% dependent on fossil fuels, not only for the electricity generation with power civilization, but for land, sea, and air transport in the manufacture of fertilizers and a host of pharmaceuticals and indirectly almost every other modern product comes from fossil fuels. Take away fossil fuels, you take away our modern way of life and send us back to subsistence farming. Yeah, Yeah, wind and solar renewables, they've been the primary driver for residents of Germany and Australia. That Those two countries now have the highest cost of electricity in the world. And second, and most important, electricity alone is unable to support the militaries. can't support the aviation, can't support the merchant ships and all the transportation infrastructure, nor can electricity make those 6,000 products that are the basis of our lifestyle. In fact, yep. in fact all the parts, you know, electricity, electricity came after fossil fuels, and all the parts of wind and solar are made from products that are made from petroleum derivatives, so
1: yeah, the, I think it's a really important point you're making because you know where there's this really false equivalence between energy and electricity, and you see these things just used interchangeably. It's in philosophy we'd call it an equivocation on energy. So sometimes they'll just say, oh yeah, Germany gets a lot of their energy from solar and wind, and it's it's they don't even get the majority of their electricity from solar and wind, but certainly their energy and the categories that are. I think most significant are, I think you've hit on all of these, but there's mobility slash transportation, the use of liquid fuel for that because it has so much uh, density. Then there's industrial process heat. So, so much of industry is, is powered not through electricity, but by directly burning fossil fuels to generate huge amounts of heat because it's much more cost effective. I, I read a, there's this really good paper by JP, a guy from JP Morgan recently, and he was, he was talking about hydrogen. You know, hydrogen is supposedly, oh, it's going to replace fossil fuels. And he was saying that the hydrogen, 95% of the hydrogen is made using fossil fuels and it's made using industrial process heat from fossil fuels. And he said, if you compare the cost of making it with fossil fuels and the optimistic cost of electricity, it's still three times cheaper with fossil fuels. So just think of cement, steel, everything uh, going way up. And then the third one you mentioned is, is plastics or or synthetics. So those three categories, sorry, you were going to say something.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, you take a look at the medical industry. I mean, all, all the, parts and pieces and plastics. If if COVID uh, happened before 1900, we wouldn't be able to handle it because everything you see on TV is made with fossil fuels, communication equipment. You know, we just put the two astronauts in space. If you've ever seen the rocket that they get launched on, that thing's about the length of a football field. If you're able to stand next to it, and look up to thirty-three stories. You're going to get this off the ground. and <laughs> You can get it up to twenty thousand miles an hour, and then all the parts—they're all made with fossil fuel derivatives. They're not made with solar panels. They're not made with wind farms. And you're right. There's there's an analogy that people are making that energy is energy, but it's it's not. Energy is more than just power.
1: Well, so one you know one argument for this idea that. E- electricity equals energy. Is well, we can just electrify everything. And so, one interesting case study of this is EVs in California, and with e- you know elect- uh, electric vehicles, or I-, I think it should be BVs, uh, battery vehicles, in California. But it's it's interesting because you're talking about how we're screwing up our grid in California. We're completely non self sufficient. We're committed to being much worse, and now we're claiming that we're going to have this mass consumption we drive all the time and now we're going to power everything by the, so we need the electricity to power the battery vehicles as well. So what's the, first of all, what's just the state of EV use in California right now? Because people, I think people think it's more dominant than it is.
0: Well, California has about half all the EVs in the country. The rest of the country doesn't really care about it. We have about half the EVs and there's 650,000 EVs and it represents a dismal 2% 2% of the 31 million registered vehicles. California wants more EV cars and more EV trucks. And of course, they'll obviously be paying no fuel tax to support the funds needed. for. Well, I don't think people know that,
1: that part of it. So you mean, they like when we pay for fuel, we're paying for roads and stuff and infrastructure. And if you buy an EV, you're not paying for that. Is that the idea?
0: You're not paying any fuel tax. You're not paying anything to maintain the roads. And, you know, most of the EVs, about 40%, um, are owned by uh, Gen X and millennials have like 35% of them. You find most California EVs are in Silicon Valley, Beverly Hills, Newport Beach. You know, currently, if you take a look at the world, it's like 1.2 billion vehicles in the world with projections to grow to like 2 billion. And with some estimates going up to 2.5 billion. But the registration of electric vehicles is projected to only be in the single digits, around five to seven percent. You know, if the current projection become reality by 2035, five to seven percent of two billion vehicles is going to be 125 million EVs. Now, whatever positives would result to negative impacts, impossible to ignore is, in fact, you've got 125 billion pounds of lithium ion batteries, need to be disposed of in the decades ahead. EV, the Tesla EV battery is about a thousand pounds.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think with those, I mean, the, I think with the, I, I am concerned about some of the environmental effects of the EVs, but I mean, I'm particularly concerned because it's not mentioned. It's a, it, it acts like, well, batteries are are health food or something like that, and there's no problems versus there's all these high toxicity elements that you you have to uh, deal with, but I think that that most of those and, and there's a lot, not enough attention paid as, as you've talked about to the foreign labor involved in the human rights abuses, particularly in places like Congo, and I think that that needs to be uh, exposed. And but I think the main thing is I would, I mean, EVs. There's a lot of nice things about them. Uh, I I ride an electric skateboard. I uh, I love it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just a question for me of when is this the most cost-effective option and one way to help. That be the most cost effective option besides not subsidizing it is not destroy our grid, which is what they 're doing because it would be great. It would be great if we have the option if e v s become really economic or let 's say elon musk 's uh, you know what 's it called the the boring company, the underground tunnels, and those can only use e v s for safety reasons like that 's all great as long as we have uh, Low cost, reliable electricity on a large scale. But this, this idea of we're banning, we're trying to ban oil and we're making electricity unreliable and unaffordable, and then we're going to all have EVs, it's, it means we're just not going to do uh, uh, anything. So, as we're uh, a couple more uh, questions, Ron. So, w- overall, like, what do you see as the direction of the policy, and what do you think will happen if we continue on this direction?
0: Well, EVs are hyped as being pollution-free. And
1: I just mean energy, uh, energy in general, by the way. That was my question. But go, go uh-huh. ahead with EVs. Well,
0: yeah, like I say, not necessarily because true EVs have no tailpipes. But the tailpipes are located at the power plants generating the electricity to charge the batteries. And it's located at the refineries that provide all the derivatives that, from petroleum that make the parts and the lithium mines around the world for those 1,000-pound batteries. The, the range in charging anxieties remain a constant sub-thought for the next buyer. And to fully charge an EV, it, it takes from, you know, 30 minutes to eight hours, depending on if you're empty or going to fully uh, top it off. Hybrid electric car owners, they're a scholarly bunch. Over 70% of the uh, respondents have a four-year college degree, and which explains the average household income of the EV buyer is around $200,000. If you're not in a higher-educated echelon in high-income marine society, there may not be an appetite for an EV. In addition, EV interest, as you mentioned, may be impacted negatively as people begin to understand the worldwide environmental degradations and humanity atrocities occurring to mine this stuff worldwide. Those exotic minerals and metals, they're in developing countries that, you know, to support clean energy, they've got no environmental controls and they got no labor controls and it's it's really just tough
1: gotcha okay so i want to just go back to what i was just asking about which is so what do you what do you think is going to happen if we continue in this direction as california what do you see going forward for us then we'll talk about
0: california you know we love to uh view gas energy with a ton of vision um I think California believes we only breathe California air and not the air in the uh, world atmosphere. You know, always you know, it's what's in front of us is, is oblivious to the negative impact to the world's emissions and environmental degradation that's resulting from importing oil from foreign countries that have less environmental controls than us than producing it in state. You know, and then you talk about the future, Newman, he, he wants to- uh, Newsom or Newman? Our famous governor. Oh, Newsom. <laughs> yeah, Newman is the villain on
1: Seinfeld, although they, I have similar feelings yeah. about it. No, but,
0: governor, our governor. He wants to further decrease our in-state production by setting setbacks to existing wells. And there's, and if he does that, you know, I mentioned we're, we're spending like $60 million a day to import oil from foreign countries. That would probably increase to $80 million a day. If you reduce California production further, you have to make up for it somewhere. It's going to come from foreign countries. So, you know, it's it's interesting that California believes that we represent half of 1% of the world population. And but the oil and gas industry is not a California business with a couple of refineries, it's an international industry. There's 700 refineries worldwide that are making fuels and making the, the derivatives to, for the products, you know, in pursuit of going green at any cost, like, like Germany's failed program. Germany was the first country to go green. It's been a total disaster. They have the highest cost of electricity in the world and their emissions have gone up. Hasn't done a thing. And California is following them right behind them. And we're going to decrease our in-state crude oil production. We're going to decrease our in-state electrical generation by shutting down these power plants. And the state's dependency on foreign countries for crude oil and dependency on other states for electricity, it's accelerating.
1: So what should, what should we be doing? What do you advocate?
0: Well, <clears throat> first of all, become more energy literate. Uh, I believe... What California's gonna do, read your book, <laughs> More Case for Fossil Fuels. Um, I've got two books. Uh, the first book is a five-star rated book, Energy Made Easy. Um, read that one, uh, the latest book. And again, I, I told that was my second aha moment, Just Green Electricity. But the subtitle is Helping Citizens Understand a World Without Fossil Fuels. And Alex, it ain't pretty we go back to the 1900s. They had no fossil fuels in 1900. And it all changed that. I know it explains, you know, your book and my two books explains it all in a clear, concise, they're all well-researched, documented, and it, it will show the public uh, the ramifications of a world without fossil fuels and the products that we, we get from, them, that we enjoy. Then, then, if they're happy with the California energy policies, that impose some of the highest costs in the country for electricity and fuels, they keep electing the same candidates. If they decide the California energy policies are dysfunctional, like I have, <laughs> and not in the best interest of the 40 million residents, especially the poor, then send a message by electing different leaders that may have some energy literacy that are cognizant of the negative impacts to the world economy. You know, look outside, if we're importing a it's coming from somewhere. And you know, what's the impact on the world economy and the increased emissions by relying on countries with less environmental controls in California you know, to meet the energy demands of the state?
1: So then I, I would say as an implication of that, I mean, one thing would be liberate oil and gas drilling in California, so allow that again, and then start building reliable power plants
0: again. Well, yes, because if you think about it, the, the oil and gas industry is, is not a needed industry. It's only needed because we have demand for it. If we didn't demand the products, we wouldn't need the refineries to make it for us because they're not making it for their own good. They're making it to meet our needs. So we have to change our lifestyle. We've you know, become more fuel efficient. My son mentioned airplanes are much more fuel efficient than they were in the past. I said, That's the good news. The bad news is more planes. (laughs) So you're not getting well. That's
1: that's good. I think that's all good news. So, I mean, so we become more
0: efficient to do more,
1: we don't become more efficient to do less,
0: right? But the, the tough thing in developing countries because you know, developing countries they're experiencing 11 million kids dying every year malnutrition, starvation, diarrhea, diphtheria, all for preventable diseases, but they don't have the medical stuff that we have here. And it's, like I say, if if people are happy with, you know, us going back to that kind of working environment, I mean, those people haven't even joined the industrial revolution.
1: Yeah, I don't think most people would be happy if they understand that the level of life that we have, you know, compared to the level of life in the uh, undeveloped world. So, well,
0: well, you know, Ron, COVID, COVID, COVID-19 was kind of like a semi-prelude to life without fossil fuels. Because life without fossil fuels, you would have no airlines. It would pretty much shut down the airports. You'd have no transportation, automobile transportation. And by choice, you know, we're locked in our house and not traveling much and the freeways are empty. The one big caveat, the one change is we may not have the transportation, the cruise liners aren't running, the airplanes aren't flying, and most people aren't driving the vehicles much anymore, is we have the benefit of those 6,000 products that is supplying the medical industry, supplying the communication, electronic industry. We wouldn't be able to work virtually if we didn't have all the electronics and the Wi-Fi's and et cetera, et cetera. All those, all those are derivatives from the fossil fuels. Now, if we go back before 1900, you get rid of all that stuff too. <laughs> you know, turning the iPad, you know, and uh, turning the television, and everything else. So, everything changed in 1900. That's when we developed the automobile, the airplane, and we were using coal to run trains before that. But that's when we were, 1900 is when we really started developing uses of petroleum, and using the derivatives to make all kinds of products. And that led us into the Industrial Revolution. That was instrumental in why we won two world wars, and how we have a space program.
1: Yeah, I mean, mobility, you know, mobility revolution and materials revolution, that's, those are both uh, amazing. And I think when people think about mobility, I mean, we experience, we're experiencing directly our lack of mobility, and how that how negative that is. But you also have to think about the mobility of materials, the mobility of products, and how much that benefits uh, your life and things like food going up in price. And so I I think one thing that's really important is just that we, we take this experience of COVID and draw the right lessons from it. Because of course, there are people saying, oh, well, this is, we need to do more of this, you know, we need a green reset. So we've had these fantastic gains, losses of emissions. And let's figure out how to keep that going. It's like, well, life, no, but that's related to life being bad. So we don't want to keep it going. Um, right. So, Ron, uh, got to wrap up, but any, any final messages that you want to share uh, with our audience or anything else you want to recommend them to? You recommended your, your two books, but uh, any other well, final my, messages? My,
0: my, my two books in your, two, in your book, because uh, I think if they're energy literate, they'll be able to understand if there's the good side or the bad side of, you know, the Green New Deal in what is being proposed, because, you know, there's, there's, there's good and bad with, with everything we do. And I just see the confusion. First of all, the aha moment for most citizens is renewable energy is not renewable energy. They got to comprehend that that is renewable electricity. Electricity. Well, and it's
1: not renewable, and it's not
0: really electricity. <laughs> That's true. But again, it's only electricity and uh you know it's not electricity
1: electricity is reliable
0: (laughs) well we want it to be reliable electricity
1: uh, is yeah we want it to be reliable but it's important it's like it doesn't produce electricity i mean it can supplement electricity it can be a parasite but it doesn't like solar and wind they don't produce what we know as electricity like they produce maybe what you know into a poor part of indonesia knows as electricity which is sometimes is on sometimes is off but I would but yeah, recommend I, I,
0: that, that people become more energy literate and be able to comprehend what's being talked about in the press. And, uh, because I, I think our politicians uh, are basically lacking energy literacy. or I think they would know some of the stuff they're proposing is not in the best interest of humanity.
1: Definitely. And I also like your point about energy uh, transparency, and we definitely need more literacy and, and transparency in California. So Ron, uh, thanks a lot for joining me. Alex, been a pleasure. Thanks again to Ron Stein for uh, joining me. One point that I, I was thinking of that uh, I didn't really fit in as we were talking is the there's this issue of the materials that we get from fossil fuels, or more accurately, it's materials we get from hydrocarbons, which that's that's the more technical term for the raw material that goes into fossil fuels. So coal, oil, and gas, you can think of as solid, liquid, and gaseous hydrocarbons. So combinations of hydrogen and carbon that are derived from ancient dead life, primarily plants and plankton, those little microorganisms. Uh, anyway, I think it's, it's important that it's, it's very valuable to know that so many of the amazing materials in our world are derived from oil and natural gas, Uh, but I think it's important that the people arguing against fossil fuels aren't necessarily arguing against these uh, synthetic materials. So when they say, you know, we're against oil, they they can, there's a coherent position that says, well, we're against burning oil, but in fact, we wanna use oil for synthetic products. And actually you'll get engineers who will say, well, actually, you know, we, we don't want to burn oil and we want to use it only for synthetic products because it's so good uh, for those uh, those products. Now, most people, I think actually, most people against fossil fuels for burning have an opposition to synthetics as well. And I think it's because there's this deeper opposition to human impact on the earth. So if you're against burning things and you only focus on, oh, it's we're impacting things too much. And that's the whole uh, frame you look at things through, then you're going to probably think the same thing about pl- uh, plastics. But there is nevertheless, when we're dealing with the moral case against fossil fuels, uh, there's a version of it that, that can be pro-plastic and that can be pro-using quote-unquote fossil fuels for uh, materials. So I just think it's important to separate those uh, issues. And it's part of why sometimes I get criticized by people in oil and gas for not talking en- enough about synthetics, because synthetics are really cool. And you, it, it's good for people to know that there are a lot of benefits from using them. And that's connected to oil and gas, things that they think of as bad. But the core issue is really, what do we use for energy? Is, this, is it okay that we're using this for energy? Is it good? Is it bad? And so that's why I focus on On that issue, primarily because that's the real question at issue. Okay, next up, let me address two listener questions. And so these are accelerator questions, which means these are people who generously contributed $250 to our accelerator program. And just as a reminder or an introduction, uh, this is a program where people who believe in the mission of my work and the work of the center for industrial progress can help accelerate that work by giving money that goes directly toward either our research and development efforts or our promotional efforts. This isn't, doesn't go to me, doesn't sustain me or anything like that. Um, But it, it, helps me do more. So it helps me bring on smart people to help with the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0. It helps me promote good videos. It's helping me with a political project that I will definitely be talking about on this show uh, next week. So it, it really is helpful. And right now we're in a crucial election year. Energy is, is going to be a huge issue. It's starting to become a huge issue. Uh, These accelerator contributions help me make a big impact. And to date we've been, uh, I've been offering, well, if you give $250, the reward at that level is you get to ask a question and I'll answer it on Power Hour. I am uh, almost certainly going to stop doing this uh, starting in August, just because I got a lot of other stuff uh, to do. So if you want to get in a guaranteed question, then you can give your accelerator contribution before August. I don't mean to do takeaway selling. That just happens to be uh, my plan just because I need to focus all of my efforts on just a few core things in these very vital few months. But these are some good questions, so I'm glad to have them. The first question is from uh, William, and it's it's kind of a cute, has some tongue-in-cheek uh, elements, but I thought he raised some interesting issues. So this is from William, and he says, privilege is the hot term of our culture. We are told, quote, you should feel guilty for your such-and-such privilege, unquote. What about energy privilege? Is a hot shower the best place to contemplate one's energy privilege? Out of solidarity with those who do not have energy privilege, should I wash my clothes by hand, read by candlelight, and cook my food on animal dung? Is it true that energy privilege is the greatest determinant of an individual's ability to flourish? Is typing negative slogans about fossil fuels on my MacBook Pro with the AC on the best way to signal my energy privilege? Please answer these questions and renounce or celebrate your energy privilege in your podcast. Thank you, Will, unabashed beneficiary of uh, energy uh, uh, privilege. So I don't think he means for me to answer all of his questions literally, because some of them are uh, somewhat rhetorical, but I, I think it's an interesting, this, this use of privilege is an interesting thing in the culture uh, and you know, sometimes we there there's I think two senses in which you can use uh, privilege, um, probably more than two, but two that come to mind for me. So some is where you are like unfairly elevated, where you are benefiting at others' expense. So that's you know. So if you think about a, uh, I mean, I think the criticism of America today that's a more complex issue, but if you just think of like an obvious kind of racist society or you know some you know society that has a caste system or any kind of system where very specifically if you look like this or you come from this bloodline you get these things and often other people are forced to provide them that's a kind of privileged situation but there are other privileged situations and i think this largely describes what is sometimes called white privilege uh, but and that's a whole interesting issue in and of itself that that discussion but it's often described as, as well you have a privilege because you're not being persecuted in ways that people of other races are, and so if you take that as well, at least on some occasions, individuals, you know, uh, black individuals, for example, like are getting mistreated, uh, let's say by police in certain situations. And I don't want to go into all the demographics of this, but let's just say, you know, this this happens, and there are certain contexts in which it happens more. At least certain places in which I'm sure it happens more. You can think of it as: is it is it right to call it a privilege? that the, what, the person who's not suffering that injustice, well, that's really just the right thing. So in that case, what you'd want is you want everyone to have this quote unquote privilege. And it doesn't really make sense to call it a privilege, except that it, it has an emphasis of this is a thing that is unusual, that not everybody has. And this is why I kind of like this term energy privilege because it's not that one person having energy comes at the expense of another, But there is something very special about having reliable, low-cost energy that definitely people today in general have, that people 200 years ago, let alone more than 200 years ago, didn't have. So that's there's something really, and it can be good to appreciate it. And then particularly to appreciate, as Will's question indicates, that there are billions of people who do not have reliable, low-cost energy and the benefits of that. So in that context of appreciating how amazing it is to have reliable low cost energy uh, i thought i would talk a little bit about how to appreciate that and some details of why it's such a quote privilege so just in terms of appreciating it it's it's really hard to remember if you live in what i call the empowered world so i call it the empowered world because i'm emphasizing the role of energy so this is a role in which we have machine power we can Any goal that we have, we can bring a lot of machines to bear uh, to achieve that goal. And one fundamental aspect of that is that that allows us to overcome the basic nature of nature, which is that nature gives us a planet not that is uh, safe and sufficient, let alone abundant, but it gives us a planet that's dangerous and deficient. And basically, if if we don't have machines, so if we have to do manual labor versus uh, machine labor, we just don't have enough physical power to do all that much productive work. And so we cannot produce enough value to neutralize all the different dangers of nature, you know, building sturdy homes and clothing and whatnot, and not enough to uh, produce the sustenance that we need, you know, the food and the Uh, the healthy drinking water that we need. And so just machines just dramatically amplify our productive ability. And it's, it's, I think it's just important to remember that we're still in a world where billions of people don't really have machine power and they have a very natural and suboptimal level of productivity. And so just, you know, I was reading recently an example, and this is from Bjorn Lomborg. I forget what publication of his it was. It's not in his latest book, although he has some stuff like this, but he's just telling some stories of people. And so this is somebody in Zambia, not to be confused with the Gambia, which is a place that I, I talk about in The Moral Case for Falsiness, but they're both um, in Africa and they're both very poor places. So it's just a description of a woman named Florence. And I would just think of this in the context of this is somebody who does not have energy privilege. This is somebody who's not empowered. And here are just some excerpts. As a widow, Florence is the sole income provider for five children and a grandchild. Okay. So that sometimes happens uh, in the empowered world, but then she scrapes together just, and I think the number is $38 each month by selling ground nuts and vegetables at a desk outside her house and renting out one of its two rooms. Okay. So just think $38 each month. So that's, No, a dollar and change uh, a day selling ground nuts and vegetables. Then her family of seven crams into one room. There is no running water and no toilet. And if I remember correctly from this story, I don't have the quote in front of me. The room is about 10 by 10. So you just think about a 10 foot by 10 foot room with seven people. So it's her, five children and a grandchild. And that's in one room. Then she says, I have great problems feeding my children. I can only afford to buy one bag of mealy meal a month. That's corn flour used for basic meals. So we only eat one meal a day to have enough for the whole month. Then it says Florence's children often get sick and she cannot afford medical care. I just pray to God that they will get well. And then here's a general quote from Lomborg. According to UNICEF, half of Zambia's children under the age of five are affected by undernutrition. Anemia and vitamin A deficiency are widespread. A lack of iron causes physical and mental impairment. On average, a person with iron deficiency is 17% weaker and loses 15 IQ points. Uh, Vitamin A deficiency causes blindness and diminishes the ability to fight infection. Uh, Unquote. So... I want to just situate all of this as this is what happens when people have very low productive ability. And an in, in, in essential of them having low productive ability is they don't have machine power. And what fossil fuels give us is they give us low cost energy, which gives us low cost machine power. And I want to elaborate on this. I think there, there are three senses in which three main ways in which fossil fuels are really any form of energy, but fossil fuels are the only form of energy that can give low cost energy to billions of people uh, for the foreseeable future, certainly with all the different kinds of energy, including transportation energy slash mobile energy, and then um, what's called uh, industrial process heat, like making steel and making cement and and whatnot. So if you look at fossil fuels or low cost energy, as long as you recognize that's only fossil fuels can give it to us, you think about how does this amplify our productive ability? How does that get us out of a situation like the situation Florence is in? So, one is when we're thinking about energy, one is we use energy to power all the machines we use to accomplish our goals. So, if we think about just in our productive life, you know, if you are, well, let's say you do work on a computer, then you're using energy directly in the computer. And then if if you have a more, let's say you're working at a pharmaceutical factory, then you might think, okay, well, I get the, the pharmaceutical factory has all of these different machines. So you can just think of the machines that produce, directly produce the product or service that you are part of. And then in your life as a consumer, you can see, well, what are all the machines I use at home? So that's the most direct thing. And so I think it's very valuable to just look in the world and to see here are all the ways in which I am using machines and to just recognize all of those machines require energy, i.e. that is machine food. And so we can think about what the lower cost the machine food is, the lower cost it is to operate the machines. So that's the most basic level. And even that's the level we're not taught to think about, just to think about wherever there are machines, there's energy. But then the second one is, so there's powering all the machines we use directly, but then there's powering all the machines that we use indirectly and by that i mean the machines that produce every material value we use so if i just think about okay i'm in a condo right now how now that has machines in it you know it has heating and air conditioning and that kind of thing it has lights here but then machines were needed to make the condo you know to assemble the condo and then all the materials in the condo were made by machines or you know, their you know, it, different kinds of intermediate materials. Let's say there are wood panels, you know, those are manufactured by machines and those use energy. And then log the logging took energy. So every material value we use is produced by m- one machine, but really many machines. As so you just think about, well, that energy, that machine food, that's used in the production of everything we do. And so the more energy we can use, the more machines we can use, the more we can produce everything uh, effectively because we, you know, we can use a, instead of using manual labor to do the logging and, you know, cutting down the trees with a saw, we can use a chainsaw or something uh, even better than that in terms of, instead of transporting them by walking, we can use a diesel truck. And instead of building the building by hand, we can use machines. So every stage of production involves machines and then, because that makes human beings far more productive than if they use manual labor. And so you can start to get why we're so productive because we can bring machines to bear on every little task and we can keep, you know, we can keep amplifying the amount of work that one person can do by giving them machines. So that's the second sense. So we, energy powers all the machines we use directly, but it also powers all the machines we use indirectly And so that's every material value we use is produced by machines, including the machines themselves. So, you know, your air conditioner that itself is produced by machines in all sorts of ways. And the third, the third way in which, you know, we're using energy and benefiting from energy. And this is maybe the least obvious is in the freeing up of time, the freeing up uh, of time. And this is something I've been talking about more recently. So we think about, a human being to survive, to just continue, we need a certain amount of food for our bodies, You know, food and water, those are the, the very basic things that we need. And what machines do is they allow us to produce either directly or indirectly, if we're trading from some, for, with someone, we can produce the basic necessities of our survival much, much more quickly, which means that we free up time to produce other things, where if you take somebody somebody who's on a subsistence farm, they're spending almost all of their time just getting to the next day. So they have no ability or very little ability to specialize in anything else. And the the more machine power you have in the society, the more quickly you can meet the most basic needs and the more time you free up for everything else that's and you can think of that from the perspective of you free up leisure time but also you free up more productive time and most of most of our jobs today almost all of our jobs today are are made possible by the amount of machine power that exists but it's not just that i'm i can think of oh i'm a writer i'm using machines to write but it's so much of the ability to be a writer and to have it be valuable that, Hey, here's somebody who advises us on energy policy. That's valuable. Well, that's only possible because there are these amazing uh, machines that we can use at very low cost to produce the basics of life. So that's freeing up time. And so what you see is that this woman, Florence in Zambia, and many other people around the world, they don't have this. They don't have uh, machines To produce things directly they're not using machines in their productive work very much Uh, there's not much machine power going into all the different inputs of their productive work and as a result there's not much time uh, freed up so there's this I, I sometimes will think of it as this vicious circle of unempowerment where you just can't produce very much over your basic survival level and so you just get stuck in that. And it's this vicious circle. Whereas once you get empowered, it's really cool because then you you can take care of your basic survival really quickly. And then you, can, uh, then you free up time to do more. And part of what you free up time to do is to innovate. And so then you can come up with better ways of producing energy or more efficient, effective types of machines. And that's a lot of how progress goes forward as we free up time And then we can think about ways to become even more productive. And then that frees up more time. Then we can think of ways to become even more productive. And that's part of why we have accelerating progress in the empowered world. So that that is really a privilege to be able to produce energy reliably at a very low cost because it is is just dramatically amplifying our productive ability by giving us machine power uh, directly and indirectly, and then freeing up all of this time. So that's how I think of my energy privilege. Hope that was useful, uh, Will. Okay, next question from uh, Farhana. We went back and forth. She was uh, asking earlier about some of the lockdown stuff, but then I ended up answering that and dealing with that stuff anyway. Uh, but she, asked, she raised an interesting issue. She says, the lockdowns were an example where rule of law broke down in an emergency. Instead, governors were able to exert control over large swaths of the population. How about discussing the effect that cheap and plentiful energy has on diminishing the power of tyrants? I was thinking about the different movements such as such as the Hong Kong uprising and some other movements such as the one in Tunisia, Egypt, and places in the Mideast circa 2010-2011. To a large extent, these have been organized using social media, which ultimately is due to the availability of electricity and devices on the internet. The backbone of the internet is powered by the availability of energy in other more free countries. At face value, it seems the response and participation in Hong Kong is greater than in the other countries. A large part of that is the organizing activities happening using the internet. I would think Hong Kong has access to cheaper and more electricity than the Arab nations. It still remains to be seen what's going to happen in Hong Kong. The Arab movements did not lead to lasting change, but at least it gave parts of the population a voice. We've also seen the protests over the lockdown here that may have led to governors backing down. These have also been organized using similar tools. Just wondering if you consider this angle, what do you think? So I think there's some really interesting issues raised here. And let me just start off with what I talked about in the last question, which is just the relationship between energy and machine power. So energy is machine food. It's what our machines eat to operate, just as we need to eat food to operate. They need food slash calories to operate. The lower cost energy is the lower cost machine power is because the lower cost energy is the lower cost it is to operate any given machine, but also to produce every machine because every machine basically is produced by other machines. So the lower cost the machine food is, the lower cost every machine is, everything produced by a machine is, and so everything in life gets to be lower cost, which means you can do more, you can achieve more in Uh, Less time, and you can do certain things that we just couldn't do at all with manual labor, like run an internet. So, in this context, the types of machines we're talking about are communications machines, and communications machines are having enormous impacts on our lives. I think there are impacts that there are many misgivings about. And my current thinking on it is they're having enormous impacts on our lives that obviously have many benefits so far. I think a bunch of hazards, but I think in the long term they will be incredibly beneficial. And so I want to start off with the positive. And one is definitely the power to expose injustice. I mean, the more you have communications machines, the more you can do things like, I mean, literally shine light on things, like literally. And then you can film them, you can talk about them, you can reach people Uh, Around the world, and it's very possible that just the existence of communication today, in in a world with any amount of machine power—at least those parts of the world—it's much easier. It's much harder to ignore atrocities, and so I wouldn't be at all surprised if, as communication increases, the the number of the number and scale of at least the most obvious kinds of atrocities would be limited. I mean, just think of something like. The Holocaust. If they had all had iPhones back then, would it have gone down that way? It's not to say that there aren't really bad things that can still happen, but would that really have happened with people seeing that? I mean, certainly a lot of the lies would have been harder to uh, expose. So I think communications machines definitely give us the power to expose injustice. And another thing they give us is the they generate more awareness of better ways uh, of life. So you just think about people are aware. Now, all these things can be distorted, but nevertheless, you can see a movie from the United States. And there are all kinds of people who hear all sorts of propaganda about the U.S. Let's say you're born in Iran and you're hearing lots of propaganda, but you can still see elements of what happens in the U.S. and, And you can say, well, I want this. And you have people who often very courageously will immigrate from somewhere like Iran and Try to come over, and hopefully successfully uh, come over if they really want to live in America and benefit from America and the freedom here. And you just think like there that that was an exposure that's much more possible with communications machines versus just oh you hear things now you could hear something true, but the fact that that uh, it's much more powerful if you can actually see it. So I see these two as huge positive forces that we can expose injustice with communication machines and we can uh, become, or we can sort of expose positives or, or generate awareness of better ways of, of life. But let's talk about the hazards of, of this. And I think one hazard, and this is something that I don't really agree with almost anyone who talks about it, because I think there are two wrong ways of going at it, but is that, Right now, like communications machines, including the communications software, are incredibly centralized and they are controlled by something approaching. I mean, this is a little bit too harsh, but anti-American statists. So it's that's too harsh, but it's not completely untrue. And there's a substantial amount of truth. I don't have the term I'm looking for before I explain the rest of that is like, there are definitely people who think that the government needs to exercise a lot more coercive control over human life. And that dramatic changes to the American system are needed, usually in the direction of more government control, so it 's not to say the American system needs to be overhauled to be more like its essence in terms of its founding principles that's that 's not usually the thing it 's usually there needs to be more uh, control and often this is lumped together i think falsely with science that is we need to you know we need to control and we need scientists to just determine uh everything and and to in effect dictate people 's lives but this is often described in terms of left and right, which I think are very problematic. But nevertheless, there is a certain kind of establishment viewpoint that is clearly held by fill in the blank, Facebook, the leadership of Facebook, Twitter, Google, just to take uh, those three. And those platforms are... So there's this movement of, oh, the government should control these platforms. It's hugely problematic. And these platforms you know are private property. Um, And I think they're, but part of what I think the people who say, well, they're private property, they can do what they want. I think that's true. But I think we have to recognize that people have, I think, been very deceived. Um, And whose fault that is, is an interesting question. But I think they've been fundamentally deceived about the nature of these platforms, because these platforms were pitched as or thought of as a social network. So it's, it's basically a network where, you know, decentralized social network where you communicate, there are some basic rules, but essentially you can associate with the people you want to associate with and you can disassociate with the people you want to disassociate with, but you can communicate with people and if people are interested in your views, they can uh, hear them. And this is clearly not what these platforms see themselves as. I mean, maybe Facebook to some extent, but I think of them not as social networks, but as cultural influence platforms in in a very substantial way. That is, the founders of them are, are in very important ways, think it is our job to influence the culture. Like, that's what we want to do. We want to make the world a better place. And so what we're going to do is we are going to significantly control what people see. On our on this platform, so it's not going to be nearly as much what they choose. We're going to choose for them, or we're going to restrict choices that they would uh, make. And I think I mean you can certainly see this with the with COVID nineteen. And I think uh, you know a very scary example that I think everyone, regardless of how you know what your views are on the severity of the virus and the severity of the virus to different people and what the politics are. I think if you look at the handling of this current hot topic of hydroxychloroquine, I find this terrifying in terms of what these platforms uh, are doing. So, and I don't want to go too much into this because this is, I don't know if Farhana wants me to address this, but, she, but it's, I'll, I'll you know, having answered the core question, I want to just talk about this where, so I have no expertise at all on hydroxychloroquine, but what I noticed pretty early on was there were certain people making claims about hydroxychloroquine who were claiming really good results and were advocating it. And they were basically saying like, give a safe dose of this early at the early onset of symptoms. Like that was their view. And if you look at just the reporting on it, it's crazy because it just constantly gets, people say like, oh, well, we gave hydroxychloroquine in massive doses at the very end, and it didn't work, and therefore hydroxychloroquine is bunk. And you just see this as this is being published as, oh, this is, this is knowledge, and everyone is being called a crank who advocates it. Okay, so that's, that's one thing. But then what happened definitively, and this is now admitted by, Wikipedia is now admitted by everybody is that there was a study, so-called study published by The Lancet, which is as far as know the most prestigious medical journal in the world on hydroxychloroquine that was just fraudulent to a degree that is almost unimaginable and involved this firm called Surgisphere that just, as far as we can know, like completely manufactured uh, findings. And yet Those findings were immediate, led to immediate action by the World Health Organization condemning hydroxychloroquine, FDA condemning hydroxychloroquine, and then some people, some of the people who were being demonized as cranks, exposed this. Uh, The Lancet had, I mean, it's a scandal. If you look at this, is not like Trump's view or not not anything like that. This is like, if you look up science magazine or any of these things, look up Wikipedia, this is just a complete scandal that of course barely gets reported compared to the original findings. So people think, oh, hydroxychloroquine is bad. And it's to the point where it's being heavily restricted by governments, where doctors who very strongly believe in it as an early stage safe treatment that could have really positive uh, preventative aspects are really not permitted to prescribe it or being punished for it. And what you see is just the... This you no, know, the the current knowledge system that's so dominated by these few platforms, they're just completely dogmatic in terms of promoting what the WHO says or what the FDA says. But then this is the key point, is suppressing opposing views. So what you had is a couple days ago, in the last few days, you had a group of doctors, I think they were called America's frontline doctors, and these are practicing physicians, as far as I can tell, most of them, you know, very respected and successful, and they believe that hydroxychloroquine is uh, that their main argument is this is very safe. It's safer than aspirin. If if you give it in the right dose, a lot of the criticisms are based on like very high, uh, too high doses. And there's very significant evidence they believe that it could be uh, effective. So that is certainly the kind of view that you would think could be shared on a social network by anybody, let alone respected doctors. But they got something like 14 million views and they got shut down by... uh, by Facebook, um, I forget what happened on Twitter, but by, definitely by YouTube. And then Squarespace, which hosted their site, shut them down for violation of policy. So these are people expressing an opinion. These are doctors expressing an opinion about a medication. And keep in mind, this is a medication that was fraudulently lied about by the leading medical journal, the leading world health organization, the US FDA, they all participated in a complete fraud about this. And yet the platforms are still perpetrating that. They still put forward, they still have like the interview with the head of Surgisphere last time I checked, like announcing these things. They're still promoting it. And yet they're suppressing uh, dissent. So technically this is not censorship because it is their platform, but it is, this is a complete suppression of intellectual debate, which and, and discourse in a really terrifying way, because it's just, it, it, it leads to these unchallenged propaganda machines, instead of uh, open discussion. And these platforms are just so, I don't know all the reasons why, but they're just so lockstep on if there is some governmental organization we are going to suppress any views that dissent with it. And in fact, the CEO of YouTube said more or less this exactly. We're going to suppress things that the, that contradict what the World Health Organization said. Now, the World Health Organization published over a 3% death rate from COVID, which is just completely false. They published that. They also said masks are completely unnecessary and masks are completely necessary. So which one of those... Uh, should get suppressed. They published this completely, or they promoted and gave guidance on this completely fraudulent study of hydroxychloroquine. And yet these, so it's it's very problematic in general for these platforms to be suppressing things. Uh, I mean, that you really got to be, you really have to have a policy, like you know what you're doing, but they're they're totally becoming a mouthpiece of these completely, of these completely I wouldn't say incompetent, but very corruptible and problematic government organizations. In general, just professional societies uh, have all sorts of issues of politics. If you've ever been involved in any of them, they're just so political. It's not the kind of thing you want to give a monopoly. And yet, you just see in the scary thing is in lockstep, they're suppressing people that they're saying, oh, they're having the wrong view. It's not the scientific view. Meanwhile, the scientific authorities have repeatedly, supposedly scientific, have repeatedly contradicted themselves and participated in, in demonstrable fraud. And that's not considered a problem. So uh, I think that w- this is a real hazard of the current state of communications machines and networks. And what it's going to really require, I think, is new, you know, new platforms for us to learn, really, and to have new platforms that have much more much less restriction um, and much more of a clear policy, not where they can just say, oh, well, we, anything we want, we can take down. And so you have violated our, our terms of service. Like that is, and, and it's one of these things where technology is not technology you can think of as a fundamentally good source. Um, uh, you know, I forget the, the word is escaping, but it's, it's a, it's a source of good. Mostly and over time, but it's ultimately something that gives us more capability and those capabilities can be used for bad things, including to suppress discussions so I think the current centralized uh very much like statist- we can at least call them establishment uh pseudo social pseudo networks and really cultural influence platforms that is a really big uh problem and i and i I would caution against saying the solution is are the government should control this, nor would I suggest taking the position. I've seen some other people take, maybe I'm caricaturing it, but which is, oh yeah, well it's their platform. They can do whatever we want. And we don't have to be, bo- it's not really censorship. So we don't have to be bothered by it. No, we have to really be bothered by it and start voting with our time to do uh, and our money to do other things. So That was a lot on that, Farhan. I hope that, you found that useful at least the first half of that and, and I'm you know I'm glad I got this aspect of the covid situation off my chest because I, I believe so much in the freedom to engage in intellectual discourse and when you have these kinds of monopolies and you just it just lowers the quality of everything and you can see when the, these monopolies exist they do not give you careful explanations of anything and nor do they give you careful explanations of the wrong views They just, they say a lot of wrong things, end up giving a lot of wrong guidance, in addition to, I'm sure, a lot of right guidance. And there's no real uh, apology process. So definitely need a change there. So that's, uh, but I should still say, overall, it's really good that we have these communications machines, these machines in general, but in particular, these communications machines, there's a lot of good they can do, but that good is not automatic. So there's a lot we have to do as ultimately the, the people running these and controlling them and writing the software or controlling the software, we have to do uh, a better job at using them. All right, that probably made this uh, power hour a little bit longer than an hour, maybe a lot longer than an hour. I'll have to check the time, but hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Let's see what else. If you, you can follow me on social media, but most important thing is if you want weekly updates as well as the free energy clarity course, go to industrialprogress.com and sign up for the newsletter. Hope I've been getting a lot of good feedback on the shows lately. Uh, I know a lot of you like me having guests. If you have any suggested guests, again, feel free to email me. I have some in mind for the next couple of weeks. So hopefully I'll be able to get them on. And there's lots of interesting stuff to talk about. And next week, I will be sharing with you some new talking points that I've created for this energy election that you can use and also share with candidates. Also, finally, I mentioned this earlier, but if you want to support our research and development and promotional efforts, you can become an accelerator at industrialprogress.com accelerator. All right, that is it for this week. I'll be back next week. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.